Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. It's just really good to be here. It really is. I mean, I just, I love that we get to gather on Sunday morning. I love that we get to get together during the week and hang out and I get to have a relationship with so many of you here and you guys all have relationships with each other and all the things you do. But man, there's something special about gathering with the family and just everyone being together and worshiping together. And um, I, I just love it. I know that, you know, it's, it's so popular to say like, you know, well, like to, to put down like organized religion and, and whatever nowadays it seems like, you know, that a lot of people are, you know, well, that's not the church. Yeah, it's not, but it's a beautiful expression of the church. It's such a beautiful expression of the body. And and, and for Jesus to feel that it was important enough that he made a habit of every week going to the synagogue, like that shows that he values that. And there's something important about that. There's something that, that Jesus found value and purpose in taking. Because he, you know, he knew more than anyone his time was limited. Like He knew that he was here for a reason, he was here for a purpose, and he was here to only do what the Father was telling him to do. And yet one of the things the Father asked of him to do and put in his heart to do was to gather weekly with a family of God in a church building, a synagogue, and, and worship and read from the scrolls and hear and teach and all that stuff. So like, he found value in the limited time that he had, and I love that we find value in the time that we have for the same things. It just shows that we're becoming more like him because when you become like him, you value the things that he values automatically. Someone doesn't have to teach you that you should value them. You know, like when you're little, your parents tell you what's good and what's bad, but as you grow in your relationship with him and you become more like him, you start to understand what's good because you're becoming more like him and his heart is becoming your heart. And so you start to value and you start to love the things that he loves. And I just, I, I, I just love being here. I do, and I'm so thankful that you guys came this morning. Um, I, got, I have a message. I think they tie together, but if they don't, we'll see which one of them wins, um, <clears throat> I think. But uh, I think they tie together. Um, this, this week, I got absolutely just rocked by, uh, by two verses, two different verses that say the same thing in two different instances, and in both cases, um, it's Jesus speaking and, and I was uh, really challenged by them. So I just want to talk to us real quick about those things. That Jesus said these two statements. How many of you guys know that Jesus said a lot of things? And that not everything Jesus said was recorded. In fact, one of the disciples said that if we were to write all the things that Jesus did, that the scrolls couldn't contain it. In other words, there's far more that happened than what you read just in the, in the accounts in the Gospels. So that means that everything that he did say that was recorded in the Gospels is really important. Because it was actually something God wanted us to hear Jesus say. And so, these two verses, one says, um, he's talking to a boy's father. The boy uh, brought him, I mean, the father brought the boy to be healed by the disciples. And, you know, the disciples tried and couldn't and all that stuff. And much has been said about what happens in that chapter. But, but at one point, the father looks at Jesus and, uh, and he says, heal him if you, if you, if you can. And Jesus says, he says, if you're able. And Jesus looks at him and says, if you can, if you believe. And then he says this. This is Jesus. All things are possible to him that believes. And then in another place, he's talking about how hard it is for wealthy people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And that's been used by some people to create this, you know, idea that people should be poor if they're going to follow Jesus. He wasn't saying that. He was saying someone who's accumulated great wealth a lot of times doesn't understand their need for more than what they have. But then he says this. He says, they said, well, then how can it happen? He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And those two statements, I, I read both of those statements and I could just hear them going around in my head. And then I felt like God really challenged me and asked me, what are you doing in your life that those two verses are necessary? What are you doing? What, ha- what is in your heart? What dreams do you have? What are you believing to see in your lifetime and beyond that those two verses are necessary? Could you live your life the way that you're living right now, ignorant of those two verses. So we're just going to pray. <laughs> and you guys can go home and wrestle with it too. No, but really think about it. Because if it's in there, there's a reason. Like, God felt it necessary not only once, but two different times to let us know that nothing's impossible. And that what we call impossible is possible with God. And I felt like what God was, was really challenging my heart with is, like, what am I asking Him for? That if I didn't have those verses, I wouldn't have the faith or the ability to believe for. Like, what's different about the, the things I believe or what I'm asking Him for or the things that I'm wanting to see? What on earth do I need those verses for? And I just felt like he, he's really just starting to take my idea of, what, of what's like possible and just expand it. Because you know that, that the things that you couldn't believe two years ago that you now believe, that's, he, you haven't arrived. Like he's now established a new baseline of what you believe to be possible. And so the next things that you're believing for that seem impossible are even further out there. And then you see those things happen and you establish a new baseline of what's possible and now you are believing for things that are even bigger. And, and, and so i just been asking myself and thinking about our church, our church family, and I wanted to challenge you guys with the same thing of what is it that you have in your heart? Because he said, you know, we talked about this last week a little bit, we talked about it a lot, I guess. If you delight yourself in me, I'll give you the desires of your heart. He delights himself in the Lord. He will give him the desires of his heart. And we talked about, you know, just sometimes we take that verse and we could think that that means, well, all I have to do is delight in the Lord and then I can ask him for whatever I want and he'll give it to me. No, he's saying when you find your delight in me, the desires that are in your heart will be the desires that I put there. I'll give you the desires that are in your heart. And that's how we pray believing. That's how we pray in faith. That's, that's, you know, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema, the utterance of God. And, you know, we've been talking so long now about hearing the voice of God and the importance of it. And this is just one more way that it's so vital that we hear the voice and know the voice of God. Because how can we ask Him for things that are above our ability to ask or think ourselves if we don't somehow receive from Him the things He wants us to ask Him for? Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. 
That means I have to be able to learn from him. He said he wants to do exceedingly and abundantly above all I could think or ask. But Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. So somehow there has to be something that happens where I find myself asking him for things that I didn't think of. Where I find desires in my heart that are not there because of things that I've thought. Where I live in a, in a place where I'm in communion with him to where my heart is becoming like his heart. And the things that are coming out of my mouth are the things that came from his heart to mine. And so I just want to challenge us as a, as a family, like in your own personal life and then for our church. Like, what are we believing God for? What do we wake up in the morning and go, oh God, I want to see this happen. And I know it seems impossible, but God, you said. What are we asking Him for and believing for? Like, we want to see Greenville. We want to see our city, you know, Greer, Taylor's, the Greenville County community, and everywhere that we live outside there. We want to see that changed by the love of God. We really want to see this place known as a place where people come and feel loved. Like, literally, where people come and they just, there's something different because of the people here. We want to see it a place where people are healthier. Why? Because there's more people praying for the sick than there are in other places. Because he said if you lay hands on the sick, they'll recover. I know we could get into why we don't see it all the time and all that stuff. But guess what? There's a way greater chance you're going to see his word come to pass if you actually act on it than if you don't. And so if we have people out there saying, listen, I'm just going to take what the word of God says. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to act on it. And then every time it comes to pass, I'm going to give him praise and glory for it and not start taking the honor and the crown for myself and not start trying to figure out what I'm doing that's so great, but just thank him for what he's doing. There's a greater chance we'll see this city start to come to, to be what we want it to become. We want to see this be a place where, where people prosper. You know, it is God's idea for, he says he takes delight in the prosperity of his servants. It's okay for you to prosper. It's okay for you to have financial blessing as long as financial blessing doesn't have you. It's okay for you to have relational blessings as long as relational blessings don't have you. It's okay for you to have all these things as long as they don't have your heart. He took delight in it. That must mean there's a way for us to have the things he delights for us to have without them having us. You don't have to feel guilty because you've been blessed to just remember why and from whom the blessing came, right? And then it doesn't become the curse. But, but, but we want to see that. Like, we want to see this place be a place. Why? Because His favor comes. Where there's unity amongst churches in the city. Where we all say to each other, listen, we don't agree on every little... I mean, my wife don't agree on every little thing within our home. Like, most of it, but, you know, sometimes I'm like, I just really want this. And she's like, well, I really want that. We don't go, well, then we can't be friends. <laughs> Why do we do that with churches? If we believe that Jesus is the way to the Father, why does it matter to us if their worship style is different than our worship style? Let them worship the way that they want to worship. You worship the way you want to worship. When we get to heaven, we'll probably do a little of each. But we want to see that in this city like where we actually see each other as, as all members of one body, where we cheer each other on and we encourage each other, truly encourage each other. Not because we know that we should, but because our hearts are so changed by Him that every time we see His kingdom advance, no matter whom it advances through, we get excited and we cheer them on and we encourage them and we take encouragement because it's God moving. We don't look and go, why doesn't he do that through us? Why? Maybe because they're doing something different than what we're doing. It's okay. He hasn't called us all to be the exact same because we're called to reach different people. But if everybody would be who God called them to be, everybody would be being reached. 
That's what we want to see in this city. And guess how that happens? It happens with us as individuals saying, Father, whatever it takes to see this happen, for your kingdom come and your will to be done in Greenville as in heaven. Literally. Jesus said to pray that. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning what? Our goal is to see the will of God done just as perfectly here as it is there. And while we can't control everyone, there is someone we can. While we don't have authority over everyone, we do have authority over someone. And if everybody would yield themselves to the authority of Jesus, everybody would go out and live their lives with the idea that, you know what, there's things that God wants me to accomplish today for His kingdom that are completely impossible apart from Him. What am I going to do today, God, that I need those verses? Don't let them be wasted breath, God. Lead me into the things that make those verses so necessary that the only thing I can hold on to is the only thing I need. And it's you saying it. See, God is completely convinced that what He said will come to pass. It's why, think about it, open your Bibles to, to Genesis chapter 1. I love this idea. You know, there's a song uh, by Hillsong that says, with no point of reference, you spoke into the dark and created the light. And that verse just destroys me when I hear it because it's not as if there was something that God could say that He had already seen without any point of reference. He just looks and He sees what's lacking and He speaks into the lack and what's needed and necessary comes into being and it's light. So in the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of, upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Think about this for a minute. The Spirit of God is hovering over the f- surface and as He's looking He sees what's wrong. He sees what's lacking. He sees what's missing. You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, we never see what's wrong. That's not true because if you don't see what's wrong, how do you know what's supposed to be right? And if He's our our example in all things and it all starts with Him, then in the beginning, He was hovering over the face of the deep and He sees there's darkness, there's chaos, confusion, void, there's there's wickedness, there's all these things are on the face of the earth. When you read it in the original language, it's not just dark and void and, and empty. There actually was something there that shouldn't be there and it was caused by a lack of something that should. I promise you what we face in this world right now is not so much because of what's there, it's because of the lack of what's supposed to be there. There's a void. Because God put man on the earth and said, have dominion over the earth and subdue it. And man, out of relationship with the Father, was supposed to subdue the earth and fill that void. And so God looks and He sees this and He speaks and He says, let there be light let the solution come and light came he looks at the darkness the confusion the emptiness and he speaks the very thing that is lacking into the darkness into the chaos he brings light 
And then He creates us in His image and in His likeness. So He creates us to look like Him. I'm tying my shoes, okay. And to be like Him. It was bothering you too, Maurice? I know. So God creates man, and one of the first things he, first he says, you know, creates man, and he says, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. He gives him authority over everything that's on the earth. That means there was nothing on the earth that man didn't have authority over. You realize when Jesus came and said to the disciples after he was crucified and then rose again, and he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore. You know what the go ye therefore is? Because I have all authority, I'm now giving you authority to go in my name. That's what it means to be in Christ. It's in His name. In communion with Him. In covenant with Him. In Christ. What we talked about last week. In Jesus' name is not a neat little Christian cherry to put at the end of your sermon. At the end of your prayer. It's not like the cherry on top, like in Jesus' name, amen, that makes it official. He's saying, in, Je- in my name. If you ask for anything in my name, if what? That means if I'm walking in covenant with Him, if I'm in Him, Christ in me, I in Him, and Him in me, like He prayed in the garden. If I would walk that way, then the things that I would pray for would be birthed out of relationship with Him. The things I'm asking for, the things that I believe would be birthed out of relationship and communion with Him. And so then I have perfect assurance that when I ask for those things, I'm asking in line with the will of the Father. And everything that I ask will be done. It's not thinking of some outrageous, selfish thing and then saying, in Jesus' name, and then holding up the Bible and saying, see, it's not true. Because I said in Jesus' name, but I didn't get the helicopter. He's saying, if you're walking in communion with me, in me, in Christ... When you ask, you're asking in my name, in relationship with me. And it's as though I'm asking the Father for these things and you can be assured that these things will be given unto you. So, He gives man authority, gives him dominion. And one of the very first things He does is He asks him to take something that has no order and bring order to it. Why? Because there's a bunch of animals running around and there's no reference to who they are, what they are, what their names are. So one by one, he brings the animals before Adam and he gives Adam the responsibility of speaking. And when Adam speaks based on what God is saying, God gives him the instruction. Adam speaks and when Adam speaks, it becomes reality as if God himself said it. It's why a lion is a lion and a horse is a horse and a dog is a dog. It's because God gave Adam the ability to speak and create order in the natural kingdom. And so one of the very first things he does is he says, Adam, I'm going to give you authority and dominion over the earth. And when you speak, because you're walking in relationship, this was while Adam was in relationship with God. Do you realize that God didn't tell Adam to do this after the fall? Why? Because Adam had surrendered and submitted his authority over to the enemy. He was no longer walking in that perfect fellowship and communion with God. He couldn't be trusted that what he would speak would be exactly what God was saying. 
And so God didn't entrust him with it. But before the fall, before the breach of communication, before Adam thought for himself and listened to another voice, God could entrust him that if Adam speaks, it'll be my heart because he walks in relationship and communion with me. So when he opens his mouth and speaks, it'll be as though I'm speaking. It's okay to believe that because in the New Testament, Paul said that's been restored back to us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 As ambassadors for Christ, we beg you as though God Himself makes an appeal through us, be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to God. What's He saying? When we say that, it's as though God Himself is speaking through us. Why? Because it's the heart of the Father. And when we open our mouths and speak the heart of the Father, it's as if God Himself is speaking. It's in your Bible. See, Jesus came to restore all things, not just some things. Once again, we can walk in relationship with the Father and be entrusted to where when we open our mouths, it's the the things that are in the Father's heart. So Paul says, look, and and Paul didn't have a verse to read. You guys realize that? Like when Paul said this stuff, he didn't have a verse that he was referencing. He didn't have his own letter to say, "I, I can prove it by the Bible. What he was saying is what? I'm walking in relationship with the Father, and I know the heart of the Father. I know what I've been entrusted with, with the Gospel. I understand that God wants people to be reconciled to Himself. So when we open our mouths and speak, it's as though God Himself is opening His mouth and speaking. Why? Because it's the heart of the Father. And whether it comes from my mouth or His mouth, it's the same heart. Because once again, we've been entrusted with being able to speak And it's as if God Himself speaks and brings order into chaos, brings light into darkness. That's why we have to hear the voice of God and know the voice of God and know His heart, know His character, know His nature, know the Word. Because there's going to be times where He charges us to open our mouths and speak on His behalf because we are ambassadors for Him. I mean, like, it's a simple concept. We all understand it, right? When we have an ambassador that goes to another country, he doesn't speak on his own behalf. Jesus didn't do that when he came to earth. Even fully God, fully man, Jesus said, the words that I say are not my own, but my Father's. What was he saying? I'm an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven here. When I open my mouth and speak, I'm saying what the Father would have me to say. And then he said, as the Father sent me into the earth, so also... Do I send you? Meaning what? He doesn't want you just walking around saying whatever pops into your head. He wants you to actually know the heart of the Father so that you can speak the words the Father gives you to say. You know, realize that's why Jesus said you'll give account for every idle word spoke. That word idle there just means stuff that you just pulled out of the air. It doesn't mean like if we talked about basketball, Jesus is going to be like, well, you know, that didn't really have anything to do with the end time. So it's not what he's meaning. He's meaning when we open our mouths and speak on matters that God would have us speak, yet we don't consider what the Father would say in that moment, that's an idle word because it doesn't carry the authority of heaven. Because some things really are a big deal. Because He's so committed to His people knowing Him and hearing His voice. So, Man has this relationship with the Father. He walks with the Father. He talks to Him every day. They live in communion. And, and, and what was the first thing that it's recorded that Adam would have heard God say? It was very good. It says He created man and women. Or he created man in His image. And on the, on the sixth day, after He creates man, He looks at creation and it says, 
Every day, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, creates man, it was very good. So all Adam knew is that everything was very good. Why? Because he wasn't created to know evil. He was only created to know good. And so Adam is, is walking, seeing nothing but good, and listening to the Father. When he speaks, it establishes authority, it establishes order on earth, and he's walking in the authority of the Father. And then suddenly, he sees something he was never supposed to see. And everything changes. Because it says, then their eyes were open, and they saw that they were naked. For the first time, Adam sees something that he wasn't supposed to see, but it started earlier than that. Look at this. Then the eyes of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. Uh, Skip down into verse 9. Right? It says, Then the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Who told you? You listen to a different voice. Because for the first time, you're saying something that didn't come from my mouth. And when he sees that they have saw something they weren't supposed to see, God instantly realizes they've heard someone they were never supposed to hear. They've listened to a voice they were never supposed to listen to. Hearing and seeing are so tied together. What we listen to, the voice that we hear, will always determine the way that we see. I can prove it to you. Turn to Habakkuk 2 in your Bibles. Habakkuk 2, verse 1, says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what He will say to me and what answer I am to give to His complaint. Habakkuk says, I will look and see what He will say. Where we're looking and where we put our focus is a lot of the determining factor of what we hear and who we hear speak. So God instantly realizes, oh my goodness, somebody told you. Who told you you were naked? And we could take that as just a hypothetical question of like, you know, well, who told you you were naked? The problem with that is that earlier on in the garden, he says, it says in Genesis 3.6, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she also gave with her, her husband and he ate. How did Eve see that it was good for food? How did she see that it was desirable for making one wise? How did she see those things? She listened to the voice of the serpent. He came along and started speaking. See, the voice we're listening to will determine what we see, and what we see and what we're looking at will determine the voice that we're listening to. So Eve is looking at something she's not supposed to be looking at. She's talking to someone she's not supposed to be talking to. She's listening to a voice and making decisions based on somebody other than the Father. And she should have known this immediately when the, when the serpent came to her and started questioning God and said, Has God said you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Right there, that's a clue. When someone comes to you and the first thing they do is misrepresent the Father, the next thing they say probably isn't worth listening to either. I'm serious. 
You you don't have to be rude and tell them to shut up, but I promise you, you can listen without listening. You can have ears to hear and not hear somebody. You can take what they say with a smile of your head and a nod of your head without taking what they say to heart and basing your thinking on it and meditating on it and letting it stick around. So so the, the tree's in the center of the garden. You realize, like, God's not so interested in removing the ability to sin from your life as much as He is removing the desire to sin from your life. That's why He put the tree in the middle of the garden. If He really thought the answer was just to isolate. Now, listen, if you have a problem with something, avoid it. But don't act like that's the cure because God didn't plant the tree in the back corner of the garden and plant ligustrums and Leland cypresses in front of it. He could have done that if the answer was to isolate it away. But what is he trying to do? He's trying to say, listen, the tree is not the problem. It's your heart that I want to change. If your heart's right, you walk by the tree and you don't even notice the fruit. If you don't listen to the wrong voice, you won't even notice the fruit listening there. It says, and now when she saw that the fruit was desirable to eat, when did she see it was desirable for making one wise? When did she see that it was good for food? Only after she listened to the voice of the enemy. Only after she listened to the voice of the enemy. Up to that point, it was in the center of the garden. Meaning what? If you were in one place and you had to go to another, you probably walked by the tree a bunch of different times. Why didn't she ever notice the fruit hanging there? Because as long as she was listening to the Father, the things that she wasn't supposed to be paying attention to had no appeal to her. Have you ever noticed you have to take your eyes off of Him to put them on the wrong thing? Have you ever noticed you have to actively actually ignore His voice in order to listen to another voice and do the wrong thing? When you're born again and the Spirit of God's inside of you, you have to actually actively disobey the voice that is speaking in order to give yourself to another voice and to do something that's against the will of the Father. That's why He says you're without excuse. That's why he says, and God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we can bear, but with every temptation will provide a means of escape that we withstand the temptation. What's he saying? Every single time there's a temptation to do something wrong, you have to choose to do it wrong because I'm actually offering you a different way. And you have to ignore what I'm saying to you and you have to ignore what I'm offering to you and you have to choose to do the wrong thing in order to make the wrong decision. Every time you sin, every time you gave in to temptation, Every time you willfully sin, you chose it. And so, now all of a sudden, there's another voice that's speaking. And you notice, he accuses them of being naked. He accuses them of doing wrong. They all of a sudden, guilt and shame, a voice of guilt and a voice of shame that was never supposed to be there now has a voice into their ear. The way to keep the enemy from having a voice in your ear is not to do the things he's asking you to do because every time you fall for temptation, you open yourself up to the voice of the accuser. That's why Jesus could say what? The enemy has no part in me. Why? Because he never gave him a place. He never listened to or followed His voice. In fact, He heard His voice sometimes and He responded to His voice with truth. Turn these stones into bread. Man, will not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of the Father. If Jesus heard the voice of the enemy, you probably will too at some point in your life. That's why you better know the Word. Otherwise, He may come and twist something up just like He did with Eve. He tried to do with Jesus. 
So now there's another voice speaking, and you notice what the voice does. The voice lures her into making a decision, and then the voice turns on her and begins to accuse her. What have you done? You're naked. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should hide. Adam, I'm naked. Oh my gosh, I'm so ashamed. Quickly, let me do something to cover this up. You know a real easy way to know the voice of the accuser versus the voice of God? They both may talk to you about the same thing. Because don't think that God will never talk to you about sin or about problems in your life. He will. The difference between the two is this. The enemy comes with an accusation and absolutely no chance of there being any solution or reconciliation. The Father, every time He pointed out something wrong, always spoke about how it could be made right. Think about it. The accuser of the brethren, the voice of the accuser comes, points out shame, nakedness, guilt, and leaves man to try to fix it himself. That's what religion does. Religion comes and tells you everything that's wrong. Bad religion. Now, there is true religion before the Father that we would keep ourselves undefiled by the world, take care of widows and orphans. You know, in other words, look after people who can't look after themselves and keep yourself from being undefiled by the world. That's, he says, this is good in the sight of God. This is true religion. So religion, we always give a slanderous name. But, but, but legalistic, works-based religion always points out the problem and then leaves you to come up with your own solution and your own works to make a way to cover the problem. It's what it does. It's why you can be so busy doing, 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 doing all the time because all you're hearing is what's wrong and all you can think of is what can I do to cover, to fix, to make this right. So he comes and accuses and then leaves Adam to fix it himself. The father comes. He points out what was wrong. But he does two things that are really important. One, he makes an immediate fix. He steps into the problem and says, I can fix this in the here and now. God will always step into where you are. He's not ashamed of you. He doesn't hide from you. In fact, no matter whether you've been living in sin or not living in sin, the Father is coming for you to be with you. He didn't disqualify them. He steps right into the problem. But what does He do? He says, okay, I see the problem. I see the solution you've tried to make. And I see where the solution you've tried to make got you hiding from me. So it's therefore no solution. So I will step into the problem and provide an immediate fix. I'll make a covering for you with the skin of animal that will cover your shame, cover your nakedness, and cover your guilt. I will do that and I'll make that immediate fix. But there's also another thing that I'm going to do. I'm also going to tell you about my plan to actually totally redeem the situation and give you the ability to live above this and not below it. So he steps into the problem. He fixes the problem immediately. He covers them with skins. But then he looks at the enemy and says, oh, and by the way, there's one coming. You, you have authority for a little while because of what they've surrendered over to you, but there's one coming. And you'll bruise his heel. He'll crush your head. What is he saying? Not only will I provide a fix in the now, I'm going to speak to you, Adam and Eve. I'm going to speak to you, humanity. I'm going to speak to you, enemy, about my plan to totally redeem this and make it completely right and restore all things. That's the difference in the voice of the Father versus the voice of the enemy. Anytime you felt accused without there being a solution to the accusation, it wasn't the Father. I can prove that to you, and I will in so many Scriptures about Jesus. Jesus.
you've never ever and this is next week we're going to start talking about I feel like we've taken this huge roundabout circle of hearing the voice of God to talk about the prophetic and the revelatory gifts, spiritual gifts. And next week we're going to actually start talking about some of the practical of revelatory gifts. But if we don't understand all of this stuff first, we're going to be like kids sent out with a weapon that is too powerful for us. And we'll do more harm than we will good. And then there'll be a bunch of people walking around wounded because they experience things in the wrong way. And they'll be so closed off to the real thing when it comes because they think they experienced the real thing and it wasn't. And all it was was somebody who knew enough to be dangerous but didn't know enough to actually follow after the Spirit of God came along. And in their zeal sometimes and in their good and best of intentions leave people wounded behind because a lot of people want to be prophets and point out what's wrong but not many people actually want to step into the problem provide the answer and be the solution to it because of Christ in them. You've never been called to point out a problem and leave somebody to figure out what to do with it on their own. If you've seen a problem, listen, and this is where I, I dislike the teaching that says we, just, we don't see anything wrong. How can you possibly offer someone a solution if you don't see the problem? Jesus didn't do it. God didn't do it. God hovered over the surface of the earth. He saw what was wrong. He opened his mouth and he declared what was right and he released what was right into the situation. Jesus did the same thing. He didn't come and say, I don't see anything wrong. All I see is right. He said, if I see something wrong, I will show you what it is supposed to be so that you'll understand not only what is wrong, but you'll also understand what it takes for it to be right. So here's, here's some examples of that, right? Jesus is in a boat. He's sleeping in a storm. I love this one because I love finding parallels. He's sleeping in a storm in the bottom of a boat with his disciples. Now he's told his disciples, let's go to the other side. They get in the boat. He didn't say, let's go in the middle of the lake and die. He didn't say that. So they should have not had any fear because why? Because the voice told them we're going to the other side. If they would have just believed what he said, they would have been able to sleep in the boat with him. Believing that maybe this storm and the wind of this storm is actually going to get us where he said faster. But because they don't believe his voice, they only believe what they see. They're hearing the wrong voice. You're going to die. Who is that? It's not God because God said, let's go to the other side. So it must be the enemy. What's he doing? Once again, accusing and leaving no solution. So they go and they wake up Jesus. You know, don't you care that we're going to die? If you start your question to God with don't you care, just stop right there and repent. Yes, he cares. And if you don't think that He cares, it's not because He doesn't care. It's because there's something about His character and nature that you don't understand. Just seek more of Him in the situation. You'll understand that He actually does care. Just Him caring may not look like what you would do if you were Him. Thank God you're not. Because if I were Him, I would have done some things differently starting with me. So they wake Him up. Don't you care that we're drowning? Jesus first speaks to them. First speaks to them. What's the main problem? The main problem is not the storm. The main problem is is that they have a lack of peace because they don't understand His promise to them to never leave them, to never forsake them, and they don't understand the simple principle. I told you to get in the boat, and I told you let's go to the other side. I never mentioned drowning in the middle. That means you're not going to drown in the middle. If they just understood that, they wouldn't have the lack of peace. So first He speaks to them. But then, God, once again, 
Because He's fully man, fully God, right? The Spirit of God rests upon Him. So Jesus goes up, and He's, once again, the Spirit of God is what? Hovering, this time in a boat, over the waters. And He sees chaos, confusion. And once again, He opens His mouth, and He speaks to what is lacking. And when He provides what's lacking, it provides an answer to the problem. Because He doesn't just say, be still. He says, peace. And He releases what's lacking into the chaos. And suddenly, once again, the chaos comes into order and the waves are still. Not simply because He said, be still, but because He provided what was lacking in the, in the situation. Once again, the Spirit of God sees what's lacking, opens its mouth, and speaks directly to what's lacking. And when the, pro- when, the, when, the, when the void is filled, the chaos is gone. I know. <laughs> I love finding those parallels. And then Jesus says to those same men that watched Him do that, As the Father sent me into the earth, so also do I send you. What's He saying? Do you realize He said to them, My peace I give you. He's saying this to the very men who watched Him release His peace into the storm, and the storm obeyed Him. And they marveled and said, What is this man? Who is this that even the winds obey Him? That even the storm obeys Him. And He looks at them at one point in time, these same men who would have saw what happened when He opened His mouth and released that peace, and He says to them, My peace, what peace? The peace that I spoke into that storm that calmed the storm, the peace that I carried, the reason I could sleep in the bottom of the boat, I'm giving that to you. Not as the world gives it. What's he saying? Not based on circumstances. I wasn't peaceful in the boat because there wasn't a storm. I was peaceful in the boat because the storm couldn't have me. And then he looks at these very men and he says, I'm going to send you into the world as the Father sent me and I'm going to give you the peace that I came with. And then later, as he's getting ready to go to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go ye into all the world making disciples. Teaching them to observe and obey all the things which I have commanded you. What was one of the things He commanded them? To go into the world the same way that the Father sent Him into the world. What was something He taught them? That they carried the peace of God. So maybe at some point they were supposed to teach the people they made disciples of that and the people that made disciples were supposed to teach you of that. And he wasn't just talking to 12 men when he said that. He realized there were hundreds of people there. Hundreds of disciples who were supposed to go out into the world and teach people everything Jesus taught them. Teaching them to obey and observe all the things He commanded them. What was He saying? 
I want this thing that I've carried. I want what has been in me and on me to be in you and on you so that you can go into the world and you can see what's wrong and never just leave people with an accusation, but you can actually step into the problem and tell them. What's the immediate cure? The immediate cure is God sent His Son to die on a cross for your sins. If you repent and you actually call upon the name of the Lord, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That your sins will be blotted out white as snow because the blood of Jesus was shed for every single one of them you can become a new creation in christ filled with his spirit all things pass away behold everything becomes new that's the animal skin that's the immediate fix but then there's also the knowledge of this and then his spirit of god will come upon you and he'll actually anoint you for mighty things and he'll keep you in his grace and there's a way that you can live above and not beneath that you can be the head and not the tail there's all these things that we learn. What is it? You give them the, the animal skin, but then discipleship brings them into the rest of it. Jesus, God gives them the animal skin, which fixes the immediate problem, but then He starts talking to them about the future. How then now shall we live? Remember, they came to, to, to John when He baptized them. They said they were soldiers and tax collectors. And they said, okay, we've, we've, we've believed this truth. Now what are we supposed to do? He says to the tax collector, go be a tax collector. In other words, you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary because you got born again. Go do what you were doing, but now do it as if you're doing it unto the Lord. Don't collect more than what's owed of you. Be fair to people. Love people in the field where you are. To the soldier, go be a soldier, but don't use your authority to abuse people. Why? Because when someone who used to use their authority to abuse people suddenly uses their authority to serve people, everybody notices and everybody wants to know why. You go live your life born again where you were before you were born again. Or before you understood why you were there. And men will notice and everybody will want to know why. Because it stands out in a world where everybody uses everything to their own advantage when somebody lives for the advantage of others. That's what he was saying to them. Where are we at? I got them numbered so I'll be able to keep track. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but what's he saying? Peter, Satan's coming to shake you. But he doesn't just leave him there. If he would have just left him there, Peter would have had no hope because once Peter fell three times and denied Jesus, he would have considered himself worthless. But I believe these words rang in his mind. No matter how long it had been, no matter what he did, I believe he heard Jesus saying these words to him. Peter, listen to me. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned, what's he saying to him? I'm praying for you in that moment, but I'm also prophesying to you about what's to come. I'm not just going to leave you there with the accusation that Satan's going to come. Why? Because anybody can point out what's wrong. God's never been in the business of just pointing out wrong and then walking away and leaving people to try to figure it out themselves and sew together fig leaves. He's always been about an immediate fix. So what's the immediate fix? I've prayed for you. So take comfort when Satan comes and shakes you. Even if you fall, realize I prayed for you. So that should bring you comfort in the moment. That's why he didn't go and kill himself like Judas did. Even though he did the same thing Judas did, except for they didn't have to pay him to betray Jesus. Think about that. And yet, he doesn't leave him there. He says to him in the immediate, I've prayed for you. 
And then he prophesies to him. And when you have returned, what's he saying? I believe, Peter, that there's a day coming. I know, Peter. I see, Peter, the day coming that you return to me. And when you do that, I want you to love my people. Strengthen your brothers. It's never been his heart to just point out something wrong without actually having the heart of the Father for not only what can happen, but what will happen. And if we're going to be people who are going to go into the world and declare things from the heart of God, then we better make sure we have the heart of God for the situation before we open our mouths and begin to speak. Otherwise, we, have a, we can have worldly wisdom speaking through us. And James says that above all things, it's demonic. It's sensual, meaning it relies on the senses, only what it can calculate tangibly. It doesn't consider God who is the one who does impossible things and makes it impossible. And he says, it's demonic. To the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, how can, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, keep all the law. I've done all these things since I was a youth. Jesus looks at him and says, you know you have, but there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And in that one statement, he both points out the problem and gives him the solution. Here's the problem. You love your stuff more than you love people. You want to get over that? Sell everything. Give it away to the poor. That's an easy solution. Why? Because then you have nothing that holds you back. There's one thing holding you back from the kingdom. You know, people have made a religion about that. I read a book one time where a guy said, oh, as many people as Jesus told to be born again, he told to sell all their stuff and give it to the poor. No, you've got you to understand something. Jesus was sharing a principle with Nicodemus, which was you have to be born again to see the kingdom. He was sharing an individual word with a rich young ruler, which was your stuff is keeping you from following me. He didn't say the same thing to everybody. Why? Because the same thing wasn't holding everybody back. But he would tell you if there was something holding you back and you asked him, what must I do to have eternal life? He would tell you there's something that's keeping you from actually surrendering everything and following me. And he'd point out what it was. But he would also point out the solution. Never just left somebody with a problem. Ever. Neither should we. Never left somebody with an accusation. Neither should we. To the woman at the well. You've been married four times. The man you're with now is not your husband. What's he saying? You've broke the law. And now you're living in sin. Points out the problem. But then what does he do? You're looking for water. And every time you drink of it, you're thirsty again. What's he saying? You're searching for something in the natural that can only be quenched a different way. He says, and if you would ask me, what's he saying? Here's the solution. Here's what you're doing. You're looking for something in men that you can only find in me. If you ask me, I'll give you living water and you'll never be thirsty again. What's he saying? That thing that you're trying to satisfy through all the men that you've been with that is never satisfied. Once you find me, if you would just ask me, I'll fulfill the desires of your heart and I'll give you what you're looking for and you'll never go looking for it in a man again. Doesn't just point out what was wrong. This is what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees always just pointed out what was wrong without ever giving people a way that they could live above it. You realize God promised back in Deuteronomy that if people would obey Him, that they would be above and not beneath the head and not the tail? What does the head do? It leads the tail. 
In other words, you won't be led around by this thing. You will actually lead that thing around when you walk in obedience to Him. There's something that leads a lot of people around. It's a tail. And it was never supposed to be the thing that led you. You're supposed to be the head. The tail follows where the head goes. That's why we're supposed to keep our eyes fixed on Him. Why? Because if my eyes are on Him, everything else will follow. And I won't have to go around trying to manage individual things because the one thing that needs to be managed is actually fixed on Him and everything else comes into subjection to the head. He said you'll be above and not beneath. What's He meaning? There's a way that you can live where you're actually above the power of sin, not beneath the power of sin. That's why He said, don't you know that you are a slave to whom you present yourself a servant to? whether to righteousness or to sin, that means you get to choose. You get to choose. You can actually be, live your life above the power of sin. Not that sin will never come along and try to find its way in, but it can't have you and you're no longer a servant or a slave to it because you actually have the ability to live above it because there's grace. Grace isn't just fixing what was wrong. Grace is the ability to live above what was wrong in the past. It's the power to keep you from it. It's why Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. It wasn't so that he could turn around and look at the father and say, can you believe she believed us? Look at her, she's going to go try. No, it's because that was really his desire for her, was that she would go and live and sin no more. That's impossible, I know, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. So you're saying you live without sin? Why are you asking that? Is it to appease your conscience because you don't? Just gonna let that one marinate for a little while. I have a bunch more examples, but so why are we talking about this? Because next week we're gonna start talking about the way things are revealed to us. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, dreams, visions. Different things that God promised what we would have. But before we talk about that, I want us to understand something. God is never going to show you something without there being a way that His heart comes into the situation. He's never going to show you something about your own life or about somebody else's life that He doesn't have a plan to redeem. Ever. So if you can't hear redemption in what you're hearing, you haven't heard the whole thing or you've heard the wrong voice. Because the accuser comes along and tells people what's wrong and leaves them to grab fig leaves. The father comes along and says what's wrong and then provides the way that it can be made right and then prophesies the way it will become even better in the future. And I believe that's a pattern for us because Jesus looks at Peter and he says, listen, Satan has come to sift you like wheat. He's going to shake you, Peter. But I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Why does he say that your faith won't fail, but then Peter's faith does fail? Because Jesus doesn't judge your life based on the three times that you denied him in one day. He judges your life based on the whole. So he says Peter's faith didn't fail because Jesus' prayers are always answered, right? Because anything he asks the Father, if we can ask in his name and believe we have it, then assuredly he could ask and believe that he would have it. So that means that Peter's faith didn't fail the way God defines failure. We look at him and say, sure it did. It failed three times in one day. God looks at him and says, yeah, but look at Peter's life and I call him faithful. Why? History rewritten. Covered with grace. Rebecca 
or sorry, Sarah laughs when God says that she's going to be have a child. Then she talks Abraham into having a child with her maidservant. And yet when it's talked about in the New Testament, it says, and she believed God and it was counted to her as righteousness. And she's called faithful in the New, co- in the new Covenant, even though the Old Covenant points out the ways that she didn't trust God and that she doubted God and tried to make it happen on her own. Why? Because God looks at the span of her life, not the two bad decisions that she made, and says she was faithful. He's not looking at your life and judging you at your worst moments. He's looking at the whole of your life and saying you're faithful. So Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've returned, what's he doing now? Now he's prophesying. You're going to return. You can't outrun my love, Peter. When you return, I have things for you to do. What's he saying? Don't ever think that I've disqualified you because of the things that you've done wrong. Peter, I want you to remember this. I'm praying for you, and I also want you to remember this, that when you return, what's he saying? You're going to return. I'm not going to disqualify you. In fact, when you return, I'm going to use you to bring strength to other children of God. That's awesome. I think that's the pattern we should be after when we're going to speak into someone's life. If we're going to be like God, then we ought to be like God. If we want to be used by God, then we have to be willing to be like Him. The same Spirit that was on Jesus is on you. The same Spirit of God that raised Him from the dead lives and dwells inside of you. I promise you, He's never going to ask you to be a prophet of doom. He's always going to ask you to be a prophet of hope. But you will be told things and be shown things that are wrong so that you can be the voice of correction, not the voice of accusation. That's what He's after. People that can see something wrong, but also hear his voice for how it can be right and then step into the mess. You realize God didn't send an angel to talk to them? You know, so many times where we see something wrong and we just start praying, oh God, would you send laborers? What if God is the, what if you're the answer to someone's prayer who can't actually be there? What if you're the laborer he sent? Now you're asking him to send laborers and God's in heaven going, I did. It's you. You think you're seeing this so that you cannot be a part of the solution? I'm not showing you that so that you can ask somebody else to come. I'm showing you that because I believe that you're the one who can come into that and step into the situation and speak the truth even in the face of everything being wrong and tell how it can be right. Why? Because you believe. Nothing's impossible. Nothing. To him that believes. So if I believe that God wants to fix every broken situation, then when I step into the broken situation carrying the word of the Lord, I can say it with bold faith and believe that it will happen. And then it happens. God, I just thank you for that. I I, I ask that you would so just break our hearts for the people around us that need us to step into the situation and carry the word of the Lord. God, I pray that we would never be people who accuse and leave people with fig leaves to figure it out on their own, but we would be like you that step in and tell them, here's the problem, but here's the way God has already made it right. All you have to do is accept what's been done. You don't need to put your fig leaves down. Stop it. Take the robe of righteousness that Jesus paid for. Put that on. Stop drinking from all those wells that aren't even wells at all. Drink deeply of Him and you'll never be thirsty again. God, we believe that You are the answer of every single problem in the world. That there's not a problem 
that isn't created by a void of what should be. And we believe that the same peace that you spoke, Jesus, into the storm, you gave to us. And that we walk around as the Father sent you into the world. With our eyes open, our ears listening, doing everything you called us to do, saying the things that you tell us to say, and trusting you in every situation. God, I thank you for that in Jesus' name.